0: Okay, this doesn't count as sermon time. In the reading, don't you love how the Apostle John twice reminds us that he beat Peter in a foot race? Twice! He wants us to know he is faster. I love it. (laughs) Easter, this uh, this is the climax of the church calendar. This is what the Christian faith is all about. Easter. I love it. This isn't just when we remember the resurrection of Christ. We celebrate, it. we cherish it, we revel over it, we lose our minds over it. Because without the resurrection, the Christian faith is reduced to nothing. It is nothing but ashes. If Jesus didn't step out of the grave, if he didn't beat death, if he didn't stand up physically resurrected, St. Paul says that our faith is in vain. We're to be pitied. And this is why we can say Easter is also lunacy. It is lunacy. Have, ever you, have you ever just stepped back and considered the sheer audacity of what we proclaim? If you could meet someone on the street, someone who literally had zero knowledge of the Christian faith, and you walked up to them and you said, you know, Hey, I want to tell you something. You know, 2,000 years ago, in Palestine, a guy named Jesus of Nazareth, who wasn't just a man but also God, he was crucified and he died for our sins, and then three days later he physically resurrected. How do you think they were going to respond? Okay, you know, back away slowly. Uh, If you find the message of Easter more than a little difficult to believe, that's okay. That's even understandable. Today, we're going to look at a passage from the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. And it contains both the climax and the lunacy of Easter. Because this is the climax of John's gospel. It's immediately after this passage that John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There's something about these five verses that makes John say, this is enough. But it seems an odd thing, especially since John ends his gospel with, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? Well, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Out of everything, That the Apostle John has seen and witnessed everything he has heard and touched. The countless stories he has from literally spending time with Jesus. The stories he has access to from the other disciples he knows who have spent time with Jesus. All the stories that are so many he can't fathom the world containing them in books. He picks this one. A story about Thomas. You know, the Eeyore of the disciples. You know, pessimistic Thomas. You know, when things get rough, Thomas says, well, I guess we should go die with Jesus. You know, the guy who explicitly points out the lunacy of the resurrection, you know, unless I see it with my eyes, unless I touch it for myself, I will never believe. It seems a bit like an anticlimactic thing to end on. Out of everything that John could access, out of everything that John could remember, why does he pick this story? This story about Thomas. But it's precisely that question that gets us to the heart of this passage. Because by asking this, we'll see that while Thomas is often pigeonholed as the patronized saint of doubt, he is really the patron saint of belief. And so John, he couples the climax and the lunacy of Easter together for good reason. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, you don't need to worry about it. Everything's going to be on the screen. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 25. John writes this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. When you're young, there are a few things as bad as missing out. You know, whatever it is, the party, the prom, the concert, uh, the the event that people just can't stop talking about afterwards. You know, oh, I can't believe you missed it. You know, this happened and that happened. It was crazy, sick, dope, yo, because kids still talk like it's the 90s. You know, this this is precisely how I felt when I realized I missed the Justin Timberlake concert last year, the 2020 experience. I did not miss Katy Perry, though. can you, can you imagine being Thomas, one of Jesus' closest disciples? Can you imagine missing the first post-resurrection appearance to the group of the twelve? John writes that Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know where Thomas was, but I'm sure he starts to doubt if it was really worth it. Like, did I really need to go buy that new tunic It did look nice. It was on sale, but I missed the resurrection. Uh, (laughs) The resurrection happens. The proof, it's been given. And Thomas doesn't see it. He's been left out. And now his friends, the disciples, they're saying to him, we've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. Have they lost their mind? If you missed an event and your friends start telling you, oh, you had to be there. Jimmy, he started levitating, David Blaine style. Put our hands under his feet. It was fine. Put our hands around him. He was levitating. You would say, is there something about this party you're leaving out? A little substance that maybe you guys imbibed in. You know, like you just wouldn't believe it. You would say, I need to see it for myself. It's lunacy. This is lunacy. Jesus, he was crucified. He was placed in the tomb. Dead stuff, it stays dead. And so if this claim from the disciples, we have seen the Lord, it makes you feel tense. You're actually in good company. Women were the, the first people to the empty tomb. And they ran back to the disciples to tell them. And, and in Luke's gospel, we're told the disciples say, nah, you're telling idle tales. Then they, they meet the risen Lord. And so they tell Thomas. And what does Thomas say? Look at verse 25 again. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Never believe. Even the earliest followers of Jesus couldn't wrap their heads around the news of the resurrection. They had a tough enough time believing that he had died. The person they thought was the Messiah, the hope of the world, had been crucified three days earlier. They were confused and heartbroken and unsure of what was next in their lives. And so undoubtedly, Thomas needs to see Jesus for himself. This is understandable, but he doesn't just want to see him. What he says is pretty grotesque. He says he needs to touch the wounds. You know, he needs to stick his his hand into Jesus' open side. And until he sees it and touches it, he'll remain skeptical. He will doubt. Because the last time he checked, nobody comes back from being crucified. Now, our reaction to the resurrection may very well be the same. This is why so many people in our culture and time will say to people, look, believe whatever it is that you want to believe. If it makes life better for you, great. But if you start claiming that this is real, that the resurrection actually happened, well, I'm going to need a little more proof than your own experience of it. And you know what it is you you'd need. Like maybe you just need Jesus to, you know, poof, you know, show up in front of you. Greetings, I am Jesus. Peace be with you. Believe in me. You know, or God opens up the sky and peers in and says, hey, Jesus is my son. You should believe in him. That would be a good thing to do. You know, these things might help you actually take that step. But unless they happen, You're going to say, no way, no way, it's all a myth. And so you'll maintain a posture of skepticism and doubt. And that's where we see Thomas, and that's where many of us are too, if we're honest. And it's perfectly reasonable and rational. Because the resurrection, it goes against everything the observable and material world teaches us. Dead stuff stays dead, after all. At least most of the time. And for a week, Thomas had to live like all of us have to do, simply hearing accounts of the resurrection, accounts alone, and living in the tension of not having been there for himself. And so we read in verses 26 through 29, that eight days later, so a week, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. You can be sure Thomas did not leave their side for the week. No new tunics. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus shows up. In a pretty awesome way. I mean, how can you not love verse 26? Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. How would that not freak you out? You know, Jesus pops through a wall. Greetings, my friends. You know, and some of you, you're thinking maybe for the first time, You know what? I can follow that Jesus. You know, a Jesus who plays practical jokes on his disciples, I am in. Sign me up. Jesus, he shows up. He greets them, peace be with you. But he also shows up with his wounds. The risen Jesus has scars. Being raised from the dead does not erase them. So the scars of Good Friday, they remain on Easter Sunday. Jesus, he shows up, he offers Thomas peace and his wounds. And this is exactly what Thomas said he would need in order to believe. But if we're attentive to what's going on, in this episode. It's actually a little bit strange. On the one hand, Jesus does exactly what Thomas asks. He offers his wounds up for examination, but it comes with an exhortation. Don't believe, or sorry, don't disbelieve, or don't doubt, but believe. If this is what you need, Thomas, here it is. But then on the other hand, Thomas believes and Jesus corrects him. He says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet have It's like that unhealthy moment in any relationship, you know, your significant other or your roommate or your spouse, and you say, hey, uh, so-and-so invited me out for the night. I know we sort of had plans, but we didn't really nail them down. Would it be okay if I went out for the night? And, you know, what do they say? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, But you can tell they're not happy about it. And so you press them. You say, you know, it seems like you might mind. Like, do you mind if I go out? And they say, yeah, 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 go, 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 have fun. You're in a double bind. You know, if you stay home, And if you complain at all about staying home, they're going to say to you, well, I told you to go out. Right, but if you go out, if you go out and you come home, they're going to say, why did you go out? You could tell that I was upset. You know, you're in a double bind and you shouldn't do this to someone. This is not good communication. Um, Doesn't it seem, though, like Jesus is putting Thomas in a double bind? You need to see me to believe? Well, here you go. Oh, you need to see me to believe. Well, you should have believed without seeing me, Thomas. (laughs) But Jesus, he's not an emotional manipulator, and so there has to be something else going on here. And there is. There's actually two things. Now, the first is that Thomas, he needs this experience as an apostle. Thomas, he needs this experience as an apostle. But secondly, we need this experience to learn about the nature of belief. So let me explain. First, uh, Thomas, he needs this experience as an apostle. Apostles are eyewitness people to the resurrection. I know the term scripture has a ton of bagna- baggage, but if you look at the gospel simply as historical documents produced by eyewitnesses of the resurrection, you're, you're getting close to the nature of what they actually are. Uh, and they, the, the apostles, they get the royal treatment. They get the royal treatment to the resurrection. They get all the empirical and rational and existential and physical and spiritual proof you would ever need to believe. Unbelief was not an option for the apostles. So John, he writes in his letter, 1 John, in his greetings, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus Christ. The apostles there first Hand witnesses. They didn't just make this stuff up. They didn't just come up with a bunch of ideas. The Gospels and the various letters are just the accounts of what they saw and touched and heard, the history and the evidence of the resurrection. And Thomas, he's among these 12. He, he's an apostle. And that's why Jesus shows up the way he does for Thomas. Because to truly be an apostle, Thomas has to be an eyewitness. But we should not be mistaken. This is not what Thomas needs in order to believe in Jesus. If we're attentive, we'll note that nothing is said about Thomas following through on his demands. Despite how it's been painted throughout the ages, and even the painting we had up a a bit ago, Thomas, he doesn't reach out and touch Jesus' wounds. He doesn't touch where the nails had pierced. He doesn't put his fingers in Jesus' side where the spear had pierced him. What Thomas thought he needed isn't actually what he needed at all. He believes without going to the great lengths that he thought he needed. Thomas realizes this, and Jesus, he makes it explicit when he says, blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Which leads us to the second thing we can learn from this account. Uh, we need Thomas's experience so that we too can learn the nature of belief. In choosing this story as the climax of this gospel, John is showing us what we really need in order to believe in the resurrection. Because that's John's goal. He wrote it in chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in your name. I mean, it'd be great if Christians were always that up front. You know, that's what we're trying to do today. We're not trying to pull one on over on you, you know? Like, if you're here... We want you to believe in Jesus. John wants you to believe in Jesus. And we think, we know what we need in order to believe in Jesus or to follow him more fully. We need to have an experience with him. We need him to come down and show up tangibly somehow, you know, an audible voice or a vision or an angel visiting you or circumstances changing or God healing someone you love or answering a prayer, you know, some sort of, you know, mm, miraculous event. I don't know what it is specifically for you, whatever it is that you feel needs to happen in order for you you to believe, but I'm sure you know what it is. And whether you've considered yourself a follower of Jesus for a while, and you just need a booster shot, or whether you've never taken that step towards Jesus at all, you do have some sort of idea about what you need in order to continue believing or to take that first step of belief. Kids are like this too. They think they know what they need, but they don't really. My daughter, Ansley, uh, she thinks she knows what she needs, but she's only a year and three quarters. And let me tell you, she really doesn't have a clue. You know, she's a little mischievous, super cute, but a little mischievous. Uh, If she had her way, she would never sleep. She would only eat cookies and watermelon. She would never wear clothes. You know, she would o- never wash her hair. Uh, and she would just play. She would only play at the park, irregardless of snow or rain or ex- excessive exposure to the sun. And, and if she had her way, Julia and I would just do whatever she wants when she wants it. She thinks she knows what she needs, but she has no idea. We know what she needs. She needs a good long nap every day because we need a good long nap every day. (laughs) You know, she needs 12 hours of sleep. She needs her protein and her vegetables and her grains and her milk and her water. She needs to brush her teeth. And why is it such a battle? I don't know. I want you to have teeth. (laughs) You know, whether she likes it or not, we know what she needs and she has to trust that we know. Thomas's story exposes us to how We don't really know what it is that we actually need in order to believe in Jesus. This is an important message for any of us who don't find faith a natural disposition. For those of us who think that God needs to meet us on our own terms if we're going to believe in this God. God will not show up the way you want. He will show up the way you need. Which is why Jesus says, we can believe without seeing him. But can we trust him when he says this? I think we can, but first we need to ask, what is it then that we really need in order to believe? We need the resurrected wounds of Christ. We need the resurrected wounds of Christ. Why didn't Thomas reach out and touch Jesus' wounds? He had the chance to do it. And and Thomas, he sees Jesus' wounds and something clicks. The light goes on. These aren't wounds to be exploited for empirical evidence to establish belief. They're not impersonal objects for scientific observation. Thomas, he doesn't need to touch them. He simply needs to see them because Jesus' wounds on his resurrected body speak to the deepest parts of ourselves. Richard Selzer, he's a surgeon who has just a remarkable gift and talent for putting his everyday work experience into pretty much poetry. I mean, fantastic words. And and there's one moment that he describes that is striking. He says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy clownish, a tiny twig of facial nerve, the, the one to the muscles of her mouth has been severed. She will thus from now on be. The surgeon followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. The young man smiles. "I like it," he says. "It's kind of cute." And he bends down to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers to show her that her kiss still. The wounds on Christ's resurrected body show us how far he has gone to embrace us. He has twisted and mangled himself to save us, to meet us in our wounded and marred and crooked forms. When, Jesus, he, when he appeared behind those locked doors to greet his fearful, wounded and ashamed disciples, the same disciples who denied him three days earlier, it wasn't to show his scars in order to shame them, to say, look at what you did to me. It was like a kiss that conformed to their wounds. It was as if the Lord was saying, I know your wounds. I know your wild imperfections, your rampant sins, your darkness, your brokenness. And not only do I see you there, I'm willing to meet you there. I will wear them on my body. I love you still. You see, we can't look to Christ's wounds without looking to our own, the scar tissue that lines our souls. We have to think about it. How did Jesus know that Thomas has said, unless I can touch the wounds for myself, I'll never believe? Jesus was present with Thomas even when he wasn't physically present with Thomas. And Thomas, he realizes this. He realizes that Jesus sees him and knows his heart and knows his thoughts, his concerns, his doubts, his skepticism, his struggles, his disbelief, his selfishness, his sin, his own wounds. And in the same way, Jesus sees all of us that way. He sees you. He really sees you. And in that place, he offers you to also see him. I was having a coffee the other day with a friend, and we were chatting, and she shared an image of Jesus that she's been storing in her heart lately that just stuck with me. And I asked her if I could share it with you, and she said yes. And this is what she said. She said, Jesus is radiant light, brighter than the sun, and it just bursts forth from who he is. And the light, it seems unapproachable at first. It's so bright that it exposes all of our darkness. It makes us see all of our shortcomings, all our unworthiness, and we're just laid bare. And it just seems as if the light is going to consume us. She continued, but if we dare walk into that light. We find at its center and source Christ's scarred body. We find all his wounds, but his wounds are our wounds. They're the wounds we've inflicted upon him, but they're also the wounds that have been inflicted upon us. And we find Jesus there willing to embrace us and hold us. And his light, this bright, radiant light, is actually shining forth out of his wounds. The best part of it was this, though. She paused and she said, When I think of him like this, he's just holding me and dancing with me. Love that. The radiant, wounded Christ sees us through and through in all of our brokenness, our shame, our regrets, our mistakes, our deep mistrust of him. And yet, he holds us and he dances with us. Jesus sees Thomas through and through. He is laid bare. And yet, Jesus offers his wounds, the wounds that can bring Thomas peace and wholeness with God. Remember the first thing Jesus says to Thomas. Peace be with you. This isn't just about tranquility in the scriptures. saying, peace be with you, Thomas, because sin has lost its power. Peace be with you because death is defeated. Peace be with you because nothing can separate you from my love. Peace be with you because I am beginning to make all things new. Peace be with you because I am here. Always forever and all of this is enough to overwhelm Thomas's doubt and skepticism. Thomas is, he, he sees Jesus's wounds and they speak to him about who Jesus really is and seemingly out of nowhere Thomas just blurts out my Lord and my God verse 28 my Lord and my God my Lord and my God this is what makes Thomas the patron saint of belief. This is the greatest profession of faith in Jesus in all of the scriptures. Thomas explicitly calls Jesus, my God. Thomas, he not only gives in to the lunacy of the resurrection, he ups the ante, he goes all in. He calls Jesus God. If he's wrong, you have to understand, he's uttering blasphemy. For ancient Orthodox Jew, this is a staggering claim. And for doubting, pessimistic Thomas, this is a staggering claim. Thomas, he is banking everything, his whole life and identity on Jesus, this resurrected but wounded Lord. And John, in writing his gospel, he says, This is it, people, this is it. This is the climax and the lunacy of Easter. The risen wounds of Jesus, they will lead us to confess, my Lord and my God. Why does it lead to that confession? I've been racking my mind over this all week, and i got to tell you, I don't have an answer for you. But it does make sense beyond the mind. It resonates and reverberates within the soul. If you truly gaze upon Christ's wounds, his resurrected wounds, you will make the same confession with your lips. Because the paradox of the Christian life is this. You can believe in Jesus without seeing the proof you think you need. Because believing in Jesus doesn't depend upon our doubts and our skepticism being assuaged or met on our own terms. Now hear me, I understand that this flies in the face of our day and age. And I'm not suggesting that you check your mind at the door and turn reason off or just accept a blind faith. All of this is based upon the historical eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And the people who actually saw this for themselves, they didn't believe it at first either. But their minds were changed when they saw the risen wounds of Christ. So what do we need in order to believe in the resurrection? We need his living, beautiful wounds. The wounds which cry out to our own scars and our own hurts. The wounds which which speak life to the broken parts of us that no medicine or teaching or activity can heal because it's by his wounds we're healed. He was crushed for our sins, we're told. Broken for our transgressions. And it's only because he was resurrected that we can have assurance that God really does forgive us, that God really is for us, that God really is with us. And so resurrection, it screams in the face of our broken souls. Life can come bursting out of our flawed hearts because sin and death no longer separate us from God. And so we look to Christ's now eternal wounds. He wears his wounds forever for us. So we'll always know that there were no bounds to his love for us. He wears his wounds forever so that we know that everything accomplished on the cross can never be undone. We will be his and he will be ours forever. And when we truly encounter him, when we believe in him, we won't be able but to cry out, my Lord and my God. And so like Thomas, we're invited not to disbelieve, but to believe. And the scriptures, they even give us permission to, to pray, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief, that prayer would be enough. And even though we haven't seen Christ physically for ourselves, we can see his risen wounds very clearly in the Gospels. And they continue to speak to us and heal us even now because Jesus is still alive, and that changes everything. You only have to believe in him, and he'll do the rest. And when you do, he says, you'll be blessed. Because if you believe he's the Son of God, you will have life in his name, resurrected life. And yes, that should make you feel like you're losing your mind. That dead stuff comes back to life. And it has an aspect of lunacy because what sounds too good to be true is actually true. And it really does change everything. Because Jesus is alive, and he is Lord, and he is God.